Today's show is brought to you by the Davenant Institute. We'll hear more from them later on in the show. Welcome back to the Irenic Protestant Podcast, where we strive for the knowledge of God and his word and in his world through the lens of the classical and confessional Protestant tradition. I am Joshua. I am not the regular host, um, but our other two Irenic Protestants are, I guess, too busy. Yeah. Um, to record. Jordan said he has something like with his wife or whatever that means. And Jonathan, I don't remember what Jonathan's doing, but you just get the two of us today, but that's fine. We're the most charming people on this podcast anyways, and we're both the the unmarried men of the podcast. So we, it shows we have time for this kind exactly. of thing. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah. But uh, how are you doing, Matthew? Um, I'm doing, what was that? Tell us about your week. My week was, uh, my week was good. Um, just lots of school stuff right now. And uh, right now I might be skipping class on Monday because I have to help my dad prepare for this hurricane that's coming towards uh, yeah, Florida. Yeah. That's crazy. Awesome. We're going to yeah. see how that turns out. Josh, how does it feel to move down to Florida and then face a hurricane? <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I think, I don't know if this is my first hurricane. I think there was a hurricane in New York, either Hurricane Sandy or something like that. But mm-hmm. I was a child, so I don't really remember it. But I mean, yeah, I guess I, I just, I want to make sure because uh, I just got a new car. You saw it when we went to the convention. Oh, yeah. It's a pretty nice car and it would really suck if like a, a log just <laughs> through my screen yeah like, that'd be rough uh, yeah so i just want to i want to make sure that that doesn't happen so i'm, I'm not going to park under a tree yeah i'm interested to see what happens i mean i don't know um i'm interested to see what desantis does i heard that when like hurricanes happen like gas prices go up so i made sure that i filled up today so that's good that's good yeah man we'll see what happens wednesday mm-hmm. that's what they say uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Thursday from what I looked at, but okay. you never right. know anything could happen, but yeah. So if this episode goes up before Wednesday or Thursday, uh, feel free to pray for us Floridians that, uh, we're all safe throughout this. And I know people go on about banter before podcasts, but guys, guys, a hurricane, this is serious. Okay. You know, yeah. we could definitely use some prayers for things like that. And for people, people who will be affected, who are in the path before Florida gets hit. So, uh, Yeah. Yeah, dude. Well, I have something to show the audience. It's really, really cool. Well, Apple Podcasts and Spotify nerds get wrecked. I have a 1734 edition of Francis Turton's Institutes of Olympic Theology. Look at that bad boy. That's pretty. Um, I'm pretty sure this is just volume one. Um, uh, yeah, it's really, really awesome. I, I want to do more digging. I don't know. I got to find who sold this particular volume uh, so that I can know whether it was like owned by a university student. There's no notes or anything. Mm. Um, I mean, they, yeah, there's this, uh, there's a few letters and a couple numbers, but I don't know if that's, that's indicative of much, but it's really, really cool. I think a, a new hobby of mine um, when I have money is to collect old books, especially reformed orthodox works um there's actually um someone selling william ames is a uh, mayor of divinity um for 500 on ebay that kind of like that kind of pisses me off because like <laughs> i'm pretty sure that like the person who's selling it doesn't understand like the significance of this text right just, <laughs> oh, it's an old book so i could i should sell it for 500 but like <laughs> yeah I don't know. It's like, if you just found it in your grandpa's closet, no one's going to buy it. Right. Like no one's going to buy it unless like maybe, maybe like me, but like that yeah. kind of, it's like, if you don't understand the significance of the book, like if I was to sell this book, I'd probably sell it for like, uh, maybe 500 bucks, 500, 600 bucks. But I understand the significance of, of the work, especially it's influence in reformed orthodoxy, but I'm pretty sure that little bozo on eBay doesn't. <laughs> anyways hey, what if that bozo is a podcast listener hey hey, easy on him. that could be true i'm sorry he could actually be very into theology and he just needs to make a buck yeah yeah if you're a podcast listener um i'm sorry but you're still a bozo um <laughs> but enough banter let's hop into the topic 
Yeah. So tonight, Matthew's going to lead us in a discussion concerning skepticism during the Reformation, particularly skepticism amongst the Roman Catholics. Mm-hmm. So Matthew, um, what kind of elicited you to, you know, uh, talk about this topic, you know, bring it to the, bring it to the podcast. It's a very, very interesting and I think relevant topic, especially just like um, the inner Christian debates concerning the authority of scripture, the veracity of reason, um, the enlightenment, whether it was a Protestant, you know, whether the enlightenment was produced by the Protestant Reformation. Um, what kind of elicited did you to, you know, bring us to the, to the podcast today? Yeah. So first off, can you hear me fine? You were lagging. Uh, yes. a bit, yeah. okay, yes. you can, okay, good. Um, what first elicited me towards this was mainly hearing a lot of uh, just Roman Catholic apologetics against Protestantism. The common thing thrown out is that everything was fine and dandy in the Middle Ages, you know, like everyone was doing great and doing dandy and all these wonderful things and scholasticism were happening. And this was the height of the church. And then all of a sudden, stinky Luther came and nailed his 95 theses, made it to where the individual can pursue their own uh, truths about scripture and they could doubt the magisterial authority of Rome. And that that came and ushered in a whole new era of skepticism. You have Rene Descartes emerging on the scene with his Cartesian doubts. You have in France people like uh, Diderot and, and uh, Voltaire questioning Rome against those very conservative Roman Catholics who were standing against not only the Protestants, but those awful skeptics. That's kind of the uh, narrative you hear a lot. And also just in um, popular apologetics, if you're dialoguing with um, a Roman Catholic and you say you say something about from scripture, you're like this, your practice here does not accord with what scripture says here. They'll say, okay, but you're interpreting scripture with your own private interpretive lens instead of submitting to the magisterium. And the problem is, is that here's scripture, scripture is infallible. Here's you, you are not infallible, you are fallible. Therefore, what you derive from scripture is fallible, even though scripture is infallible. Therefore, we can't trust where you go because you might look at the text, Calvin will look at the text, Luther will look at the text, all of y'all will have different uh, interpretations and therefore different conclusions, and therefore we can't trust you. Whereas we have an interpreter of, of infallible scripture and the interpreter himself or itself, because it's the magisterium, the interpreter itself is infallible. Therefore, all I have to do is submit to the magisterium and put my own reason aside. Boom, I'm set. You're in a bit of a hole. And that's that, again, that's typically the narrative that we hear. So because of that very common narrative about the enlightenment, about interpreting scripture and things like that, it just really got me into the subject. And um, so I just started doing a lot of research and I came across this uh, YouTube video. Um, it was by this podcast of these two Anglican dudes and it was uploaded um, by this guy on YouTube named Goy for Jesus. Uh, I think his Twitter name is Operation St. Cyprian, but he's a very solid guy. I'd recommend checking out his YouTube channel, Goy for Jesus. But uh, the guys on the podcast were talking about this paper um, written by a man who I was very familiar with from some philosophy classes, but written by this man named Richard H. Popkins, and it's called Skepticism in the Counter-Reformation in France. And so I listened to the episode. I'm like, okay, I'm hooked. They're kind of claiming that the papists started the enlightenment almost. And then I read the article again from an author who I had read numerous times before for my different Mm -hmm. philosophy classes. And it's very solid. And it was like very enlightening. And so I've written a few things for, um, on this paper. And so for this episode, what I kind of do is I kind of took various places from different essays I've written for class and I kind of merged them all into one big uh, paper for this episode that I'm going to use as a script. And I was just going to read that off and basically summarize this, but I'm sure we'll put a link in the description to this uh, so that you can read it. But yeah, that and very long answer. That's what elicited in my interest in this topic. Yeah, I think it's a very, very, very interesting topic because that's usually what you hear. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I was at the National Conservative Conference, which was which was great. Um, when all the Protestant videos are out, you guys should watch them. Um, They're very good. Protestants represented at at the National Conservative Conference, and right, obviously, like you know, the rise of liberalism doesn't happen necessarily concurrently with the Enlightenment, but you know, the ideas of John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, Descartes, 
um, they kind of produce postmodernism, and then with postmodernism, you have you know the fifty-year reign of liberalism. Um, and a lot of people think that because of Luther's dissent against the church, um, it caused all of these ideological problems in Western society. Um, so I think most Roman Catholics that I know, I guess like the ones that I've talked to, I don't think they're stupid enough to say that, um, that the Enlightenment was started by the Protestant Reformation, given the fact that, you know, one of the chief Enlightenment philosophers, Rene Descartes, was Roman Catholic. But and nevertheless, it is something that you still see. And yeah, I mean, yeah, it is something you still see in like popular apologetical circles that, you know, Luther and Calvin will only be comments of just like people who talk about this in their systematic theologies. But like, you can only make that claim when you don't have a sufficient understanding or just, uh, you know, a thorough exposure to, you know, reform philosophy, reform metaphysics, reform epistemology. Um, I think a lot of Roman Catholics and Protestants alike, they really undermine the robustness and the, the philosophical, you just, just how acute our philosophical tradition is, you know, our distinctly reformed philosophical tradition. But take us away. Um, and yeah, I'll just in I'll insert my comments here and there. Awesome. <clears throat> well, um, let's get started. If at all in this point in the video, uh, I end up like, like we just cut out and resume at one point. It's because we're not on Jonathan's Zoom. So the Zoom will go out in like 30 minutes. And so it might be an abrupt ending because I might just keep on reading while that's happening. But um, yeah, let's uh, get rolling on this. All right. <clears throat> let's begin. The Reformation was one of the most important events in European history. There is a serious upheaval of the social order and both sides were willing to sacrifice everything to preserve the faith. On the Roman Catholic counter-Reformation side, this can be seen most especially in France. Though often associated with Roman Catholicism, there was a time when Protestantism flourished in France. It was John Calvin who was from France and left behind a French Calvinist community through the Huguenots. This was of great concern for the French Romanists, and thus there was a priority to stamp out the Calvinists by any means possible. And just to pause here really quick, it is very significant to note how important France was for the Roman Catholics, as this was literally like, at one point, the Pope was living here for a bit. Um, I think numerous popes, someone can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but this was just a very important place for Romanists. It, it's almost like how serious the Reformation in Italy was and how big of a deal that was there. So yeah, but France was definitely very important, but I'll resume. Uh, during this time, the French Calvinists were seen by most of the people there as masters of both reason and scripture. Take these two things away and it was sure that they would be defeated. The manner by which the French Romanists sought to take these things away from the Calvinists was through the use of skepticism and specifically Peronian skepticism. This can be seen through the collaboration with Michel de Montaigne and his tradition um, which in this collaboration with Montaigne was held by many Catholic leaders, such as Pierre Charon, uh, Juan Maldonet, who himself was personally associated with Montaigne, Cardinal Jacques Devy du Perron, Francis de Sales, Bishop Jean Peru uh, Pierre Camus, Gentian Hervé, and many more. Also, I apologize if I butchered all those names. I know no French. Um, but Montaigne was a very important figure here because he was one of the chief skeptical philosophers who revived much of Sextus Empiricus's uh, Peronian skepticism, which was primarily aimed at, back in his day, it was aimed at overturning a lot of what uh, Plato and Aristotle built in regard to their reasoning. So there were two forms of skepticism back then, and there was academic skepticism and then Peronian skepticism. With academic skepticism, that was a skepticism of someone like Socrates, who was like, basically the gist of it was like, the more I know, the more I realize I don't know. It's so like true knowledge is not knowing, but it still said that you can infer things. You just can't know things for like absolute certainty. But the Peronian skeptic mm -hmm. skeptics went way further than that and had like an unhealthy skepticism of man to the point where it's like the idea of, oh, my true knowledge is knowing nothing. They would say, that's a knowledge claim. 
the only good knowledge to have is just to not have an opinion on anything, which itself is ironic given that that is an opinion. But yeah, so Montaigne is very important here. Um, and with regards to Genti and Hervé, he was, um, this is a very important person because he was one of the chief translators of Sextus Empiricus's writings. And this man was a, a veteran of the Council of Trent. He was at Trent and he attended and contributed much to it. And so one day this veteran of the Council of Trent was in his Cardinal's library and he stumbled upon the writings of Sextus. Now he was a little bit bored because he had to translate all this different material and he had to spend copious amounts of times in the fathers and writing polemics. So one day he just decided to take Sextus Empiricus for pleasure reading for the side instead of having to do all this grueling translation work and spending time in the fathers. And upon examining uh, this work, he was absolutely enthralled with it. From this ancient skeptical work, Hervé was illuminated and was made aware of the fact that the only thing certain is God's revelation. Human reason is of no use because it cannot withstand the onslaught of skepticism. Now, on this point, something important to know about um, the way that uh, Sexus Empiricus did philosophy was you would make a claim and he would just do an onslaught of how do you know? How do you know? Like you ever have a little kid like constantly pester you with questions? That was Sextus Empiricus. He would totally destroy any foundation for anything. And then instead of offering something else, he would just be like, no, leave it at that. You can know absolutely nothing. And so um, Hervé would use this same reasoning and realize that human reason, because of the way in which Sextus Empiricus did philosophy, it was of absolutely no point. So by trusting in revelation alone, because again, we can't reason, so we instead we just rely on revelation from God. So by trusting in revelation alone, one is taught humility and is able to balance their mind from dogmatizing, yielding only to revelation. There's this huge concern with human dogmatizations using reason, and the ironic thing is just like how much this goes against traditional Roman Catholic theology. I mean, you think back to um, St. Thomas Aquinas's works on work on um, his little commentary on Boethius's De Trinitate, and the very first thing it starts off with objection one is about whether one can actually use natural reasoning um, to know anything, and. Thomas answers, yes, absolutely, we can know. You need divine illumination to know spiritual things, but you can know other things by natural revelation. So this is a complete upheaval of, um, of the traditional Roman Catholic position. So with this, Hervé found something he believed could annihilate the human dogmatizing tendencies of Calvinism. Because again, this is Calvinism that is doing all this dogmatizing. And we see this chiefly in the confession. So like the Belgian Confession of Faith, the Heidelberg Catechism, the um, Synod of Door, and things like, um, like the Westminster Confession of Faith. What people did was the, these divines, they looked at, they looked at revelation and they utilized reason to derive dogma from this and thus they put it forth in confessions. And so there was this idea that Calvinism had this dogmatizing tendency that needed to be done away with. And for Hervé, God could only be believed in. He could not be understood. Now, Maldonet, who himself had a relationship with Montaigne, he likewise had a very similar skeptical outlook and a way to combat Calvinism. And he discusses this in various correspondences with Montaigne. Maldonet sought to convince the Protestants that in rejecting the authority of the Roman magisterium, they would have no infallible interpreter of scripture and thus had to doubt everything. If the church, or, um, yeah, if the church can err, then Luther and Calvin could err in their interpretations of scripture, and thus the Protestant had no epistemic certainty. Now, I'm rattling off quite a few names, and some of these might be unrecognizable to the listener, but this next name is a fairly big name that I think that most people know about, and that's Francis de Sales. He's one of the chief Romanist divines from, uh, from France, and uh, many think that this guy, like, oh, yeah, he completely owned Calvin and all that he did. But the sales actually, um, he was very much, um, though he defended the use of natural reasoning a few times, he himself was very skeptical. And uh, that I actually, this isn't included in what I typed up, but I just have to pull this up right now. Um, the sales himself corresponded with the stepdaughter of Montaigne who was continuing his project, and he heavily encouraged her in her endeavors. And his secretary, who was Jean-Pierre Camus, um, the Bishop of Valais himself, 
he proclaimed himself to be an open follower of Montaigne. So Francis de Sales himself was very much associated with skepticism, of the radical skepticism, and surrounded himself with these people. So he very much enabled them. Um, but he makes a very similar point as Maldonet. He states here that, quote, if therefore the church can err, O Calvin, O Luther, to what will I have recourse in my difficulties? To scripture, they say, but what can I do, poor man? For it is concerning scripture itself that I have difficulties. I'm not in doubt if I ought to adjust faith to scripture or not, for who does not know that it is a word of truth? What troubles me is the understanding of this scripture. The purpose of utilizing skepticism, there are I stopped that quote a while ago, so unquote. But the purpose of utilizing skepticism was to show that if one admitted that the Roman church could err, one was thus faced with a bombardment of skepticism patterned off the arguments of Sextus Empiricus that was so great it would leave the Calvinists in skeptical despair. Thus, the remedy to this despair was the magisterium. Uh, before I move on, Josh, do you have any comments or uh, questions for discussion? Uh, I think, yeah, I think it, the it's very very interesting right because like um i think the underlying presuppositions of of that of the papists at the time are there has to be a distinction in the uh, the faculty of reason between the laity and the magisterium right and i think our metaphysical tradition from aristotle to thomas aquinas would completely disagree with that right as a rational animal the thing that we share in common is the faculty of rationality although that may differ in potency right um and although like there's some people who are philosophically acute and some people who are not right obviously everybody has their unique gifting but and i i think i'll save this for later because like this whole skepticism thing right the the skepticism that's going on in the early well, not early, but at the middle of the, the 16th century, it kind of leads to an important, an important formulation that is later formulated by the Reformed Orthodox, but I'll save that. I'll save that for later, but so far, so good. Okay, awesome. Uh, let's move on then. <clears throat> what much of the Counter-Reformation ultimately boiled down to was pushing a type of Roman Catholic fideism by attacking the Protestant utilization of reason and thus any type of reasoning. If a Roman Catholic wanted to know what the scriptures taught, he could consult the infallible magisterium, but the Protestant had only his fallible reasoning to interpret the scriptures. Because of this, the Protestants were forced to become defenders of natural reason. French Romanist Francois Veron claimed that every text doesn't come with the built-in interpretation of itself, but, as, but that one has to draw consequences from the text that is not necessarily contained in the text itself, and that something outside the text is made as authoritative or more authoritative as what is in the text. So um, that was like a, a mouthful to say, but like basically his point is that the text itself doesn't tell you how to read it. Therefore, by utilizing your reason to understand what it says and to draw conclusions, you yourself are on the same level or are more authoritative than the text. And thus, you know, that would contradict like the principle of sola scriptura and all that. And it just would show that it would almost be like you claiming to be infallible or you would concede you're fallible and thus you are not in the right position to interpret this text. But in response to these attacks, Calvinist leader Pierre de Moulin wrote a book in defense of the use of logic entitled, I'm going to say the French title, I don't know French, so it's not going to probably sound well, but whatever, entitled Elements de Logique Francois. I think we understand what that means, though. But in this work, de Moulin pointed out that the laws of logic are derived not from the ancient Greeks, but from nature. And he pointed this out because Verone would make the point that the Calvinists are using these rules of logic that were kind of, that Aristotle came up with. And what the heck, why are you using Aristotle? He's a pagan. It, it's very ironic how the mm -hmm. Romanists are talking about this when they literally have um, an entire tradition within their, uh, within their communion, which is built on Aristotle and his conclusions. But it's like, it's almost like these Roman Catholics watched a bunch of dividing line episodes and now yeah, they're yeah. attacking the, the reform for using Aristotle. So it's funny how, how things mm -hmm. work. Um, but in response, uh, um, where was I, where was I at? Oh, 
But um, again, Dumoulin pointed out that the laws of logic are derived not from the ancient Greeks, but from nature. And he points out that this can be seen and that even peasants make syllogisms without even thinking about it. They, they, You yourself make syllogisms every day. You go, if this is true, then this is true, therefore this. Like you always um, use a syllogism. So you don't just get that from the ancient Greeks. Most people who make syllogisms have never read Aristotle in their life. And because this is derived from nature, not from the Greeks. But despite this, Verone still stuck by his critiques, even going so far as to establish eight rules against deriving dogma from scripture. And here are the eight rules he came up with. Number one, the conclusions that the reformers have arrived at by inferences are not in scripture. Number two, these inferences are never drawn in scripture. Number three, by using inferences, reason rather than scripture is made the judge of religious truths. Number four, reason can err. Number five, Scripture does not say that conclusions derived by logical means are articles of faith. Number six, the church fathers did not know the conclusions derived by the reformers. Number seven, the conclusions at best are only probable. Reason eight, even a necessarily true conclusion drawn from scripture is not an article of faith because nothing can be unless it be revealed by God, unquote. Now, hearing yeah. these, while at a glance, uh, many of these seem to be possibly powerful points. The reason, the reasoning employed is actually very self-destructive, something which many Calvinists pointed out at the time. On the premises of Verone, he himself could have no epistemic certainty either. While it is correct that the Calvinist does have to employ his fallible reasoning to interpret the infallible scriptures, the Romanist himself must employ his fallible reasoning to interpret the infallible magisterium's interpretation of the infallible scriptures. Um, I don't know how to pronounce this guy's name. French reformer Jean Dale. His, his name is spelled D-A-I-L-L-E with a little mark on it. But Jean, Di, I don't know. He himself tried to show that by Verone's logic, one couldn't be certain of any council, church father, or any writing in general. Skepticism was not put to rest with Romanism, but instead it just persisted all the more. Any appeal to papal authority necessarily led to the question of how does a Romanist know who the Pope is? How do they know whatever he says is authentic? How do they know whether he's been understood correctly? And the beautiful thing about this is you can literally see this today. Go to any Tradcath Facebook group chat. Ask them about Francis. Ask them about what he said. There's going to be one who's like, he's a heretic. There's going to be one who's like, oh, he actually meant this. This happens all the time, even in modern Roman Catholic discussions. I mean, look at the debate that um, Matt Frad just had on his channel with the Diamond Brother and, I don't know, some other Roman Catholic dude. They were like, um, the set of accounts debate, it's like, it, this point itself is like just so demonstrably true that that just because that fallible human reasoning always has to interpret infallible statements and things like that. So with the Roman framework, fallible human reasoning has not been escaped. Now a word from our sponsor, the Davenant Institute. This week, we're spotlighting Davenant's new book, Protestant Social Teaching, Introduction. For over 100 years, the Roman Catholic Church has steadily curated a body of papal encyclicals, classical texts, and go-to answers on pressing moral issues of the day. That's going to be known as Catholic social teaching. Meanwhile, in Protestantism, mainline churches have steadily jettisoned nearly every historic Christian moral teaching in an effort to make the faith more relevant and progressive. While evangelicals, though still committed to scripture, have often done a little better in holding fast to norms that used to guide faithful Christian discipleship when it came to love, war, and everything in between. However, Protestants too have a rich heritage of social teaching, if only they knew their own tradition, a heritage that dovetails on many points of Roman Catholic teaching, but is also influenced by the Reformation's emphasis on the goods of family and the nation. Now, for the first time, we are planting a flag for Protestant social teaching, a coherent, Catholic, biblical set of convictions about what it means to love one's neighbor in both personal and political life. The essays in this volume span the breadth of human life, from birth to death, from work to welfare, while providing a clear moral compass on hot and button issues like abortion, just war, and environmental care. This volume brings together contributions from a dozen authors who have deeply studied these diverse moral issues from a classical Protestant standpoint, distilling their biblical and historical insights into short, accessible chapters that can guide the reflection of every pastor or Christian leader. If you'd like to check out this book, we'll have it linked below in the description. Now back to the show. All right, let's get into this uh, next section. 
Montaigne himself even engages in Roman Catholic polemics through utilizing his skeptical theories. According to Montaigne, humans have a natural inability to reach the truth about any subject whatsoever, and thus the one thing they can hold on to is their faith, because it is not based on flawed faculties, but it is instead a pure gift from God. In his An Apology for Raymond Sibond, Montaigne develops a thorough skepticism to demonstrate the unreliability of our sense perception and of our rational abilities. Now, that um, actually may sound familiar in Apology for Raymond Sibond, because if you've ever been to college and taken any undergrad philosophy class, when you get to skepticism, that's like the first thing you're going to read. And keep in mind that Montaigne is himself a Roman Catholic who frequently engages in conversation with many Roman Catholic authorities. So I don't know, just a little something to keep your mind, yeah. your mind on there. And um, I don't even know why I forgot to mention this, but even Descartes uh, himself, like Josh mentioned earlier, was a Roman Catholic. However, this strand of um, skeptics were not a fan of Descartes at all. Yeah. Uh, they very much disliked Descartes because Descartes used his skepticism. Um, Cartesian doubt and skepticism was used as a means to arrive at uh, very confident conclusions about the existence mm -hmm. of God and the mind and things like that. So they didn't like, they thought that um, Descartes was way too dogmatic. So the, um, they weren't fans of Cartesianism, surprisingly. But um, yeah, there are different strands of skepticism, but both of them, I would say, have uh, impacts on the Enlightenment, yeah. uh, especially Descartes for sure. But um, yeah, I think I think it's very interesting, just like the the radical difference. I wrote a paper a couple months ago on Jerome Zanke and Peter Rodovermigli's reception of Aquinas. And Zanke has, I'm forgetting the, the particular Roman Catholic that he's interacting with, but that's one of Zanke's points that, you know, um, Zanke kind of like uh, just, just, just the proof of his rhetorical training. He kind of says, as your Thomas says, right? Just refuting yeah. the Roman Catholic idea of like this idea of skepticism, because like it's, it's completely inconsistent with um, the Thomistic tradition and just the Christian tradition in general, right? Just not, I mean, I think it comes to a climax, right? And I think, you know, the, we get like a good formulation on the role of reason and the limits of reason in Thomas Aquinas, you know, said contra the Ventilians. But, uh, but yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting given the fact that, you know, one of the, the way that people interpret the Council of Trent and the way that, you know, they, they think that they're in, in line with Thomas Aquinas, that we are speaking on behalf of Thomas Aquinas and we are in line with our, our patron saint when that's not really the case, right? Especially if you're going to deny the veracity of reason, and they're kind of denying it for like bad purposes as well. Um, so it's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But um, yeah, so that, those are all very good points. Uh, yeah, but um, in his apology for Raymond Sibon, um, Montaigne develops a thorough skepticism to demonstrate the unreliability of our sense perception and of our rational abilities. All the skeptical arguments of sexist empiricists are poured out to demonstrate the futility of man's claim to knowledge. <clears throat> Of this, Richard H. Popkins, that is the um, the scholar on Peronian skepticism, who's also the uh, author of this article I'm frequently referencing, but of um, Montaigne's uh, skepticism, he writes, quote, this marriage of complete skepticism and acceptance of Christianity by faith alone, <laughs> faith alone, ironic, Complete fideism, Montaigne offered as his explanation for remaining a Catholic and rejecting the Reformation, since we have no reason for preferring one thing to another, for making a choice, all we can do is remain in the condition in which God has put us. Near the end of the 17th century, the alliance between Romanism and skepticism slowly but surely began to fade away after many Romanists began to see the implication of this alliance. Now, there's a lot more that's in this article that I wish I could go over, but I just can't for the sake of time. So I would highly recommend you read this article yourself. But there are many instances where people try to push back against this um, skeptical tide, and they were punished for it by Roman authority. So that is the case. But eventually, after all of that happened, <clears throat> um, many of the Romanists began to see the implications of this alliance. <clears throat> One of the final straws uh, that broke the camel's back here was when a work by Father, Father Richard Simon sought to obliterate the Calvinist appeal to scripture by, get this, demonstrating that there exists no original manuscript of the Bible 
in that nobody knows the original meaning of ancient Hebrew. Therefore, no one could base their faith on scripture. Seeing the self-destructive implications of these points as it regards any possible historical documents, the work was suppressed before it could be published. Now, I just want to say this might sound crazy. Like this might sound insane to you. Like you'd never see this happen. I kid you not, though. There was a dude. I posted this like section from Popkin's article on my Twitter. And I was like, LOL, look at these Romanists. Haha. And some dude literally came and defended the guy. And like was like, yeah, we can't really know what scripture says. We just know it from the liturgy. And I'm like, bro, like this actually happens. Like this isn't just like dudes from back then. This has like, and even though it was suppressed, this people still think this way. Like there are people in Romanism with a very low view of scripture. So these things are just very important to uh, be aware of. But we're getting near the conclusion here um, of my presentation. And so uh, just like um, to get into this, the alliance between skepticism and Romanism lasted from the end of the Council of Trent until the period of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. With the Edict of Nantes no longer being binding, many believed that French, France was now, as they said back then, tout catholique or truly Catholic. And the Counter-Reformation had succeeded to preserve Romanism. While it may be the case that the Counter-Reformation was indeed successful in driving out Calvinism, it cannot be said to have been successful in preserving Romanism. Because of nearly a century of the basis of faith being pure skepticism, it is no shock that men like Voltaire and Diderot emerged out of the French Enlightenment applying these same standards to Christianity itself that the Romanists applied towards Protestantism. The alliance between skepticism and Romanism was ultimately doomed from the start, as it totally discarded any foundation for human reason would eventually eliminate any basis for a rational religion as well. The French Counter-Reformation, immersing the nation in a sea of skepticism and doubt for over for nearly a hundred years, surely helped formulate some of the radical shifts that were to follow in France. And that is my presentation. That was really good. Um, yeah, I think we should link the presentation and then also the uh, the paper by Popkin. I, I think, yeah, it's a very interesting just I, I, I like how you highlight the conclusions of it, like, you know, guys like Voltaire, who will apply the same standards to Christianity that were applied from the Papists to the Calvinist tradition. Um, but I think this kind of, and William J. Van Assel was, was I mean, when I, I first found out about this through him in his book, Introduction to Reform Scholasticism, which is a really, really good, you know, just small you know, kind of compendium that kind of can get your head on, you know, the history of Reformed Orthodoxy, that, you know, the three divisions of the periods of Orthodoxy. Um, yeah, it was, it was a very, very helpful book for me. But just the, the rise of this, of this papal skepticism, it kind of, it kind of leads to the, you know, the solidification of our understanding of the perspicuity of scripture. Um, Antoine Willeus, a couple years after, um, yeah, probably like 50, 70 years after in 1625, when the Latin synopsis is published, he has a disputation in the Latin synopsis titled on the necessity and the authority of scripture. Um, and then he just, he kind of has this like really, really cool quote. I just, I find it very, very interesting. And, it, and it's a, I think it's a good objection to bring to Roman Catholics. And it, and it's, it concurs with your point that the, the elements and the principles of logic um, first principles are not derived from Aristotle, Socrates, Plato. Um, they're derived from nature. These are things that are infused on the soul by God to rational creatures. So Antoine Willeus says, and just as the first principles and immovable norms do not depend on the authority of those who use them, right? I don't think any Roman Catholic will claim that the law of logic depends on the subject, right? It just depends in the veracity of the law of logic of that first principle that is innately infused on the soul, right? So the immovable norms do not depend on the authority of those who use them, but only on the one who has established them and its own light and evidence. So too, Holy Scripture, the supernatural principle of all sacred teaching and the unmoved rule of faith and moral conduct can depend on nothing but God who has granted it? Mm -hmm. It's Antoine Willeus, Disputation <clears throat> Number Two of the Latin Synopsis. 
And this is, yeah, it's like, even in our, our ordering of each loci of theology, it's, it's reflective. It's reflective in our, of our understanding on the veracity of sacred scripture, the perspicuity of sacred scripture, the perfection of sacred scripture, right? So in the way that any traditional reform systematic theology looks like in the 17th century, so in, in the period of reformed orthodoxy, you have your prolegomena and then your doctrine of sacred scripture. Right. So the doctrine of sacred scripture precedes everything because it is the principle of theology. Right. And then theologians like Turretin and Willaeus and, and Unius and others will make sure to specify on the perfection of sacred scripture. Scripture is clear on all of its you know, fundamental doctrines. Um, and I think you mentioned something else. Right. It's like there's a lot of you know articles of faith that are yes, revealed in scripture, obviously, because they're articles of faith, right? They're not yeah. mixed articles revealed in nature, but there's things that are, right, derived from good and necessary consequence, right? That's section six of the Westminster Confession, um, chapter one. Um, and yeah, it's like Thomas Aquinas and the rest of the Western Christian tradition would have agreed on the use of consequences, right? Yeah. They are things that are, that, that are, that need to be drawn out with the faculty of reason and obviously you know <clears throat> theology is only done right because the the internal principle of theology is faith um as Vutius says um theology is done by christians right so it's obviously not that our faculty of reason has changed in substance but obviously through regeneration right through the infusion of new habits into our soul right the quality of reason for a christian right compared to a pagan obviously increases so yeah i think it's it's very very interesting and yeah i think that's something that roman catholics really have to deal with um one more thing that i'll, I'll add henrik alting who is a german reform theologian has a dispute he has several disputations against bellarmine and i think this is kind of congruent with <laughs> just I, and that's why i think the reformers are more in line and this is this just gives me confidence of like being reformed is because the reformers are more in line with the Western Christian tradition than late papal medieval scholasticism, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. Gabriel Beale is not, you know, reflective of anything that, that he's, I mean, he's reflective of some things like Pelagianism that nobody wants to identify with. But Henrik Alting, um, Aristotle in his posterior analytics, he gives a, a brief definition of what a principle is, right? Traditionally, the way that Thomas understood it, and this kind of begins with Hugh, um, Hugo of St. Victor, and the didascalon, well, no, not the didascalon, on the sacraments of the Christian faith, right? Hugo of St. Victor, right? Medieval theologian identifies the principle of sacred theology, right? So the way that the, the especially with the rise of the medieval university and just, you know, the integration of the liberal arts um, and the, obviously the setting of theology as the queen of the sciences, right? So the sciences were beginning to be taught at Christian universities, Um each science has its own principle, right? There's, there's principles that are, you know, derived from nature, right? You know, um, metaphysics, right? The principle of metaphysics is reason, right? That's how, that's metaphysics is distinct from sacred theology in principle, right? The principle of metaphysics is reason. The principle of sacred theology is, is sacred scripture. So Hugh of St. Victor, medieval theologian, identifies the principle of sacred theology since theology is a discipline as sacred scripture, right? Thomas Aquinas does the same, in the first article of the of the Summa Theologia, he says that the principle of sacred theology is scripture and also the articles of faith, which I believe he's referring to the Apostles' Creed. Um, and this is just continued in the, in the Christian tradition. Obviously, this isn't explicitly, I think it's implicitly formulated in the Reformed stance on Sola Scriptura. But when you got guys like Franciscus Unius, Henrik Alting, um, these are guys that actually give us a formal understanding of what theology is and what the principle of theology is. So I think Aristotle's definition of principle is a, is a principle cannot have something else that it refers to, right? A principle is a means by which we know something. The means by which we know sacred theology is through the sacred scripture. And that is the self-attesting principle. And it can have nothing else that proves that it's a principle it, it just it wouldn't be a principle then right and that's something that henrik alton invokes in his disputation against bellarmine it's like the roman catholics right the papists do not have a good understanding of theology as a discipline one and then the unique principle of sacred theology it is not the magisterium right the unique principle of sacred theology 
is scripture itself because theology is a discipline but yeah i think it's very very interesting and, and those are i would have to do more digging on prdl if those are objections that roman catholics deal with but i mean yeah it's a it's a big thing like how do you what do you do with aristotle's definition of what a principle is right in in, in his posterior analytics so yeah yeah no and um while you're going on that like uh i remembered my reference to um Aquinas's uh, commentary on Boethius's De Trinitate and uh, just going to his first two answers to his objections he brings I won't read the objections and all that because the answers themselves are sufficient to see his position but he says <clears throat> although we are in no way sufficient of ourselves as from ourselves to know anything without the operation of God yet it is not necessary that for every operation of ours a new light should be given to us in matters of natural cognition, God teaches us interiorly in this way, that he is the, ca the cause of the natural light which is in us, and he directs it to the truth. But in the other supernatural matters, he further teaches us by the infusion of new light. So in supernatural matters, yes, God does teach by infusion of new light, but we actually because like so yes god does help us to arrive at natural knowledge but that's because he is the cause of the natural light which is in us and someone like montaigne like would deny that they would say that no even by the natural light you cannot know anything because then they would just bombard you with peronian skepticism and i don't remember who it was but someone in here uh in this article one of the roman catholics they literally said that like Aristotle was not the one that like Paul would have preferred. Paul would have preferred uh, Peronius or whoever. I forgot what the guy's name was, who was like um, the, the word Peronian skepticism came from. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like that they would have heard like the Apostle Paul was basically a Peronian skeptic, you know, talking about like the like, you know, being a fool for God and all that and like the the wisdom of the Greeks and all that. And so that's very much is their position. But yeah, um, I just think that. <laughs> this even i'm glad that the way in which um while the, it is the case that a lot of um a lot of pop papist apologetics is very much this kind of like you know horrible skepticism straight from the pits of hell uh mm -hmm. there is like a good amount of uh roman catholic theologians and philosophers like i'm thinking of people like ed phaser who thank god they don't follow this line of reasoning and they actually have been doing the necessary work of of doing the reasoning and so yeah i just hope to see that more it would help very much with conversations with roman catholics to see them acknowledge that this is stupid mm -hmm. i have seen some roman catholics actually who do acknowledge this is stupid those are some of the smarter ones out there but then there are others who will very much defend this principle of not being able to know anything and some who even claim that this kind of idea is augustinian and it's like a return yeah. to augustine which is like I don't know what to tell you. No, yeah. Uh, my previous professor, Keith Matheson, um, I guess a little update for uh, for the podcast. I don't know if we told them I transferred schools. I'm now a pre-law student at the King's College in New York City, although I live in Florida. I do it online. Um, <laughs> but uh, one, one, of the, one of the objections that Matheson brought up in class is that there's big metaphysical presuppositions. Um, one, because like one, there's already a distinction between, right, the, you know, the, you know, archetypal theology and ectypal theology. Archetypal theology just refers to the knowledge of the divine essence. Obviously, the divine essence being one, that knowledge is one with that essence, right? You know, God is not divided into multiple parts. Um, ectypal theology is the finite creaturely referent um, to that archetypal theology. Right. So obviously there's a metaphysical distinction between our knowledge and God's knowledge. Right. And I think with the Roman Catholics, especially with the inclusion of the magisterium, you have one more metaphysical distinction with the magisterium and the laity. And no one's trying to say that, you know, you know, uh, old bucko Joe can interpret the sacred scriptures infallibly and come to the, the conclusion of the three mode of subsistence of the, the Trinity. Like he, he probably doesn't know what a mode of subsistence is, but in regards to things that are clear, right? Because the nature of sacred scripture is because scripture is um, clear and perfect, right? Because of its perspicuity, you know, your old bucko Joe can read 
the you know romans and say oh obviously we're justified by faith right it's yep. because in regards to that proposition is clear it's not as it's not as if it's it's vague right obviously like one of the reformed hermeneutical principles is the and you know the analogy of faith and allegia fide interpreting scripture with uh interpreting you know less clear passages with more clear passages but in regards to propositions that are clear such as god is one right that proposition i i go through the three acts of, of the mind and then i'm like okay i understand this god is one right so in regards to clear propositions which we would say all the fundamental articles of faith are clear propositions laid out in sacred scripture old bucko joe can understand that without right obviously he can understand that not necessarily on his powers alone right scripture is autopista it is self self-authenticating but there is the internal light of the of the holy spirit to illumine yeah. our minds to understand even the clear propositions but yeah i mean there's a huge metaphysical presupposition that the magisterium is different in species right it's like they must have a higher faculty of reason than than we do, right? We don't we don't yeah. agree in substance, right? Because their faculty of reason is is obviously it can be greater in capacity. No one's no one's denying that. Like no one no one's denying that, right? But someone's faculty of reason being greater in capacity doesn't really matter if a proposition is clear, right? Because all rational animals can understand clear propositions. So yeah, there's yeah, there's a lot of things. I think, um, as you said, you mentioned Ed Phaser, and I, I don't think like obviously we're ironic Protestants, so our stance is not that you know Roman Catholic shouldn't be read like just you know outright. But in regards to contemporary Roman Catholic apologetics, I think it would be very very helpful um, if Roman Catholics were acquainted with these sources, right? Acquainted with the arguments yeah. that the because this this really this was happening during the early period of orthodoxy the beginning of the early period of orthodoxy so like 1565 to 1620 if you read the texts that are available in english or in latin right because i think roman catholics are better than better better than protestants in, in education um so they probably do have the capacity to read latin if you read the text in the objections right and, and deal with those objections right like you know it's like i think i think like Obviously, I don't, I, I guess I'm kind of biased and partisan, but I think at the Davin Institute, I think they're dealing with like, you know, the, the traditional Roman Catholic objections. I think uh, a lot of people on Twitter, a lot of scholars are rising um, on Twitter. And then people that I know that go to you know prestigious seminaries that are dealing with the actual arguments of Roman Catholics. Um, but I, I don't see the same by Roman Catholics like Trent Horn. I, I don't know how acquainted Trent Horn is with uh, Francis Chariton or the Reformed Orthodox tradition. It's like you shouldn't really speak out against your enemy if you're not if you're not really reading him. And I think that 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 causes it kind of causes a hindrance in these inter these interreligious debates. You know, because obviously there's a difference. Uh, these interreligious debates between Roman Catholics and Protestants. Um, it's like, oh, we're just, we're speaking, we're honestly speaking to like a door, like we're speaking to like just a, a brick wall because yeah. one, I think, but I think, I think there's, there's a, there's a big shift, I think, especially in Protestant education, because just with the exposure to the reformed Orthodox, the reformed scholastics, we're starting to be like, that's why having a text like Turretin is so good, right? Because it's the institutes of elenctic theology, right? It's specifically dedicated to dealing with objections brought against the reformed faith, right? So it's like one who reads Turretin, obviously, and I think Turretin would advise us as well, like go back to the original sources, go back to the primary sources, read Fontaine, right? And tear apart Fontaine using the reformed Orthodox tradition, using the confession, using our metaphysical tradition, right? Just the metaphysical tradition of the West. It's like, no one believed this about the faculty of reason until uh, these Roman Catholic skeptics. Um, so, yeah that's that's my that's my little tangent yeah. but uh Great yeah tangent. it was it, it was really really good um uh we hate uh roman catholics just kidding uh, <laughs> <laughs> easy easy um, easy uh, in light of that um in light of all that talk about education and things like that it obviously requires a lot of uh you know reading and literacy so uh josh what have you been reading recently big guy yeah i've been uh 
I've been reading, rereading um, Franciscus Unius's uh, The Mosaic Polity. I guess people know it by, by its formal title, On the Observation of the Mosaic Polity. I've also been reading this by uh, Adrian Vermuli. So as a good law student, I think it's good that I I read on constitutional interpretation. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, I've also been reading Sir William Blackstone's um, Commentaries on the Laws of England. It's really, really good. Um, yeah, I think it's it's something that the founders were reading. And I think someone who wants to go into law, I think it's something they should read as well. Um, so yeah, next time that we record a podcast, I'll make sure that I have my painting of Sir William Blackstone right there just Very to nice. show you guys that I'm based, but, um, <laughs> yeah, uh, just reading Unius. Um, I'm reading him, rereading him something exciting news that's, uh, related to Davenant in three weeks. I'll be driving up to South Carolina to present a paper on, uh, Franciscus Unius. Uh, the title of the paper is called An Ordinance of Reason for the Common Good. Um, Unius's Reformed Thomas Theory of Law. So I'm very excited for that. I'm excited for the two days um, that I'll be up there in, in South Carolina. It's I kind of I have a break from work that week. So it's it's very, very nice. Um, just end it with, you know, going up. The conviviums are the are, are the best. Like if you've never been to a convivium, you definitely go. It's please awesome. go to a convivium it's yeah. like it's soul transforming i think the the faculty at the davenant are some of the most humblest people that i know very solid people, um yeah. yeah just great friends so excited to catch up with a mm. bunch of davenant guys and yeah. conviviate um so yeah that's what i've been reading how about you matthew awesome uh well i've read i've been reading um luther's uh three treatises i just finished um his uh <laughs> letter to the German nobility. And I've recently started his um, Babylonian captivity of the church. So that's always, it's always fun to read Luther. He's, you know, he's something. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, especially, uh, especially his later works on (laughs) anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yeah. His later work, his latest works on a certain, yeah, certain people are always very uh, interesting to read, but I actually haven't read it yet. I do plan on reading it because I'm, I'm just a curious guy, but yeah. His later anti-Semitic works are definitely going to be something to read. But um, yes, I've been reading uh, Luther's three treatises. Um, I've also, for my fiction reading, I finished reading C.S. Lewis's That Hideous Strength. 10 out of 10, read it. It was great. I still like the Space Trilogy better. Some people might crucify me for that, but that's just me. Um, But recently I um, got into reading, um, my fiction book that I got into reading now is, uh, is Dante's Inferno. I plan to read Sorry, I got distracted. Some cat I don't know is in my patio. Weird. Um, I plan I on reading. What was that? Yeah, dude, we should read it together. We should do like because I'm actually I'm actually reading. I'm starting um, the Divine Comedy again. I'm only um, a little bit into the Inferno, so we can do that, bro. Yeah, dude, let's do it. Yeah, but um, yeah. So I'm reading the Inferno now. I plan on reading the other two as well. You know, it's so funny because I have a friend who is a Roman Catholic convert. Funny enough, he's kind of in the process of apostatizing from from rome right now so praise wow. god but he he's been pestering me to read it and he's like bro you got to read dante i'm like yeah of course the papist convert is going to tell me to read it whatever then i get yeah. to work and my disby baptist MacArthurite co-worker who is a presuppositionalist is like bro you haven't read dante what's wrong with you and it's like okay wow this guy's telling me to read dante i i gotta read dante so yeah i've i've started dante um I've also, I wish I had the book with me right now. It's in my room. I'm not in my room right now because it's 80 degrees in there. But um, I recently got a book on St. Thomas Aquinas' uh, Trinitarian Theology. And I plan on yes. reading that once I'm finished yeah. with uh, Luther. I've heard many good things about it. I recently reread uh, Scott Swain's Little Green book on the Trinity. And I saw him reference that a lot. So I decided mm-hmm. to uh, get it. So I'm very, very excited to uh, start that read. So. Yeah, yeah, I actually have that book on my shelf. I can't, yeah. I can't see it because I'm blind. But yeah, I think it's Emil's uh, guide something. Yeah, something. yeah, yeah. I don't know. Kind, just, I don't remember, but something emails Guyry. I don't know. I just, I feel yeah. Bad. But I, I look forward. I'm gonna read that right when I'm done with Luther. And honestly, my reading's been like, it's been all over the place though because school has been very crazy for me. So I've been. Yeah, uh, dude reading a lot for school as well and you know i don't really count that as reading sometimes unless i'm reading like a whole treatise i've had to read a lot of descartes the past few days and that's not fun descartes a bum 
but uh he's more entertaining than some yeah people. now i have to read spinoza right now it's like dude this early modern philosophy class is just like poisoning my brain uh, yeah yeah that's what i I've guess yeah i guess you would have a lot of objections in cl- oh. i guess that's the fun that's the fun part of class yeah my, um, my, 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 philo- my philosophy professor is a very staunch materialist atheist and actually believe it or not in 1996 he debated william lane craig on god's existence so can i find that debate online yeah, I can say it's not a video, but it's going to you have to read the whole thing. But yeah, you can find it. Nice. Yeah. So uh, if you ever yeah. get curious, you can uh, look that up. Honestly, I don't remember my professor's name, so I don't know. <laughs> I'll find out later. But I, I know what the interview. Yeah. Is. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, he's an interesting guy. I had a class on the Cambridge Platonist with him one time. He loves to cuss nice. and, and he hates conservative politics. So it's always fun because wow. he'll just randomly throw like in digs. at Yeah. Desk. And yeah, so that's always fun. But um. Anyways, this was our, uh, yeah, our episode on skepticism. So Josh, you opened us. Would you like to close us as well? Yes. Um, thank you for watching the Irenic Protestant podcast. If you like the podcast, follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Um, give us a like, a thumbs up, um, and subscribe. Hit the bell button below so that you can be notified every time that we do something Irenic. Um, yeah. Thank you for watching and have a blessed night. Yeah, y'all have a good night.